This is Lifting the Lid. Conversations with fascinating people living life on their terms. Our next guest requires no introduction. One, two, three. One, two, three. So on today's episode of Lifting the Lid, I'm back in my hometown of Mudgee, New South Wales, and I'm lucky enough to have a sports broadcasting legend, Ken Sutcliffe, join me. Welcome, Ken. Hello, Dean. How are you? Very well, thank you, mate. Yeah, it's a great, great time of the year. Now, mate, uh, 50 years in broadcast media. You really have had the kind of career you could only dream about. But what was the goal when you were starting out? The amazing thing is I can't imagine, could not have imagined at this time I began broadcasting back at 2MG Mudgee, I think in 1966, part-time radio. But all I wanted to do was be a disc jockey. It was the time of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, all that sort of stuff. And, and disc jockeys in those days were treated like pop stars. So I thought that was a terrific thing to get into. But when I first left school, I tried to get the job at the local radio station. And I, I mumbled at the interview. I, I stumbled. I never looked the interviewer in the eye. I was painfully shy, which is not a good way to start out if you want to be on radio or get into the entertainment business. So I ended up... A mate said, you need a job where you're forced to talk to people. So he got me an apprenticeship with his uncle, who's a barber. So for the first two years as a barber, uh, you know, I was just doing what everybody else does from that sort of job. And then after that period of time, I got a part-time job down at 2MG, and away I went and went full-time a couple of years later. So it was a deep-held ambition for me uh, from about 10 years of age to be a radio announcer. After that, I had no idea what I was doing. And why sport? Were you a sports fan growing up? Well, if you live in the country, if you don't play sport, your social life is, in those days anyway, was severely restricted. It's not the same anymore with new forms of communication and all that sort of stuff. But then, you know, the sport was about sport, but it was also about community. People getting together, swapping yarns, having a chat, catching up on the latest gossip and so on. And so you didn't have to be great at anything, but you had a crack, you know. I played a bit of basketball. I was okay at that. I played tennis, which was my best sport. I played a lot of rugby league, minimal amount of rugby union. And I only played rugby union so I could see my future wife <laughs> because I, she came back from college, private education, and she uh, followed rugby. So I decided I'd better play rugby for a little while. But, um, no, you had a crack at everything. But it's an integral part of a country town's tapestry is to play sport and so much focus is around it. And why the move when you decided to move from Mudgee? What was your next steps beyond 2MG? Well, I, I started full-time at 2MG on a Monday. That very afternoon, I was offered a job at 2LF Young, which at the time was considered one of the better radio stations in the bush. And uh, my uh, boss said, look, you, you can't let this opportunity go by. Hey, go down there, they'll put you on a three-week probation, see if you've got the goods. So I went down there, and on the way down, I'm listening on radio to 2LF, and um, I heard this guy uh, calling Rugby League, and I thought, oh, he must be, uh, must be on relay from Sydney. But it doesn't sound like a Sydney team he's calling. He's calling Young up against uh, Harden Murrumburrah or whatever. And by the time I got to uh, 2LF Young, I realised that the guy behind the microphone was in fact in Young at the time, and his name was Ray Warren. So after doing bits and pieces of everything at 2MG, from funeral announcements to community announcements to disc jockeying to interviewing the local mayor, here was a guy who was a genuine broadcaster, and I thought, 
I call rugby league okay, but I could never be as good as this bloke. He has obviously got the goods. Did he sound like he did? Oh, today? yeah. He, he is a multi-talented. I mean, the, the fact that he decided to take up the swimming commentary, which he hadn't even looked at up until about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the beginning of Ian Thorpe's career and Grant Hack and all that sort of stuff. And all of a sudden, he became the voice of swimming. But he was great, obviously, calling the horses. Rugby league was always his first passion. And, um, yeah, an outstanding broadcaster, one of the best. As a fellow Mudgee resident, you were a personal inspiration for me as a kid. I love TV. Seeing you on Channel 9 when you made it down there, you're proof that a career like yours was possible, even if you lived in a small country town. Mm-hmm. How did your career at Channel 9 begin? Well, I was uh, in management at the time and at... Uh, Channel 7 in Townsville, not the Channel 7 we know, but at Channel 7, they owned a, radio, a television station in Townsville and also in Cairns. And I was in administration, doing a bit of part-time on air when I wanted to. But I'd run out of steam. I thought, you know, I, I can never be the managing director. I just don't have that ability. Be, be honest with yourself. What are you really good at? And I thought, well, the thing that really captures my imagination, other than music, is sport. It's sport I love. So... I decided, to, my wife said, you've just got to, got to have a crack or otherwise you will walk around for the rest of your life saying, I could have, but I didn't. What if? Yeah, you know, what if, all that sort of stuff. So I applied for a job at um, Channel 9 and World Series was, uh, cricket was just about to begin and a new television show called Wide World of Sports. And David Hill, who was the guru behind both projects, happened to be in Cairns uh, with uh, Viv Richards and the West Indies team up against Australia, first part of the games, the re- regional areas, playing World Series cricket. And he watched me on local TV. It just so happens he went back to Sydney, picked up the, this application. Oh, that must be the guy I was watching on TV up there. I thought he was okay. You know, a bit rough around the edges, but we could mould him. So I applied, and I did say to him, it was a big, big lie, I'm a passionate, absolute passionate supporter and fan of cricket, of which I wasn't. Not the way they were playing cricket in those days. But I thought, you know, I won't get found out. I can always gloss over the areas I don't know. So, so this was Test Match Cricket, obviously before the yeah, World and, Series started. Yeah, and, you know, and a new World Series is on the, on the way and everyone was reading about it. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I applied and I came to Sydney in 1979 and I was split between two departments, doing news um, with Mike Gibson in sport and then there was me as his backup and the main newsreader, of course, was the legendary Brian Henderson. So I was off and running, and uh, my greatest gift has that I started my career in, in Metropolitan TV and stayed with the M1 network, the Nine network, which had the best of programming, the best of sport, best of journalism. You know, uh, that, w- that was fortuitous, yeah. And you've mentioned previously that it took you some time to become comfortable on camera. Mm-hmm. What, why was that? Well, to this day, I can't stand watching myself. I, I don't go back over tapes. Uh, just recently, I had a look at a tape that I of a program, 1988, when I did a year with Graham Kennedy, and fairly come. I watched it and I thought, yeah, I can understand what people thought it was funny, but I'm looking at myself and I'm cringing because I can see all my idiosyncrasies are there to be exposed. You know, Graham, he was off and running, of course. He was a legend. He, but the good thing that worked there was that I didn't know much about him. I mean, we, where I worked in North Queensland, they never took his shows. Uh, when I was a boy in Mudgee, they, we never saw him in Melbourne tonight. I only knew about him by what I read. But when you work with him, you realise what a genius he was. So 
you know, that that split me for one year doing sport and then, and, and Graham, and then after that year, they said, we want you to host Wide World of Sports. And the, Just going back to seeing you with, with Graham and you saying you cringe watching yourself now, but do you think that was part of the charm of that show is that probably for the first time the public saw a different side of you? Graham, you know, has famously said he, he loved seeing you cry when you were laughing so much. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, I had no idea that I could do anything like this. But Graham had apparently watched me when I was uh, one of the on-camera people at the 1988 uh, Calgary Winter Olympics. And he looked at and he said, I can do something with this fellow. I think he's natural or, you know, and I can get something out of him. But the thing that really convinced him that um, it may work, he saw me talking to Helen Daly one day across to the Today Show or whatever it was, and they had the, um, the luge, the two-man luge, where, you know, they lay in a very compromising position. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's still weird to this day. And I, I did say to Helen, just so innocently, it's the best fun you can ever have laying on your back. And, of course... You know, everyone, wow, what did he just say? Kennedy, back in Australia, thought, that's hilarious. And I started laughing uncontrollably. The tears started to come down my face. And there was no way out of it. I just had to say, I'm sorry, I didn't quite mean it that way. But, you know, it was too late, the horse had bolted. So that was, that was the beginning. And uh, the hardest thing to be in television or any media entertainment is to be yourself. It really, it, it's, and those who can be themselves are the successful ones. For a long time, most of us try to be what we think people want. But, but many years ago, I figured it out. You just be yourself, and if they don't like that, well, that's the end of that. And you touched on the Winter Olympics there, and you've covered some of the best sports tournaments in the world. Can you tell me about the real big ones, and if you have any highlights? Uh, well, there was 20 years straight of doing uh, Wimbledon, and uh, I watched the greatest men's final I've ever seen. In the old centre court, the roof was off. What part of the roof was there? It was under construction, the new facility. And, um, and Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal played five sets of superb tennis. It was almost dark when they finished, wasn't it? Uh, it, uh, it was mind-boggling because in five sets, you usually get one or two sets that are okay but nothing great. And then you get three that are great. This was five sets of absolute glorious tennis. So that rings as a highlight. But tennis is something I knew a lot about and knew all my heroes, which was Kenny Rosewell. Um, but the thing about it, what I, I found interesting is I was asked to go to the 2006 um, World Cup in Germany. Now, I put my hand up. It wasn't my number one sport. I could report on it. I could have a look at it. I could make sense of it. But I wasn't what I'd call an expert. But when I got over to Germany... And I saw the magnitude of the world game. I saw the stadiums, which were magnificent, and the people singing, no dancing girls, no balloons, just people singing, people passionate about the game of soccer or football, as they want to call it in Europe. And to me, I thought at the time, I thought, well, that was not 2006, so it's not that long ago. Uh, at the time, I thought to myself, it won't get any better than this. And, and, you'd, and you'd seen a lot by then. Oh, well, I, I reported on the America's Cup in Fremantle, which was a terrific, once again, a sport that I had limited knowledge of, which was an event rather than just sport. And then State of Origin was amongst it, and then you had Rugby League Grand Finals and the 500cc Grand Prix. Watch Wayne Gardner and all the Australians doing so well, Kevin Schwantz and Mick Doohan. You know, you, you see all these sort of people. 
uh, and you mix with them and you enjoy their company. Uh, so I, I had a thrill out of all those sorts of things, but that, that thrill of 2006, the, the crowds, the atmosphere around it, not just at the game, but through the towns and the cities of, of Germany. And Carl Lewis was a hero of mine, and you were actually at the 1984 Olympics. What was it like witnessing him win four gold medals? Well, the thing about it, when somebody extraordinary comes along, you've you got the feeling that no one's going to get better than this. No one. Florence Joyner, you know, done years later for drugs, and just so many people were shattered by that because she was just a great mm. athlete. Uh, you know, to this day, I look at Carl and I think, I thought he was wonderful. I thought he was extraordinary. And I, even though there might have been a suggestion. There's a question mark, isn't there's, there? There's always a question mark about people who do something that's extraordinary. They break new barriers. And now to this day, there's still an open question mark. But to see him, he was charismatic. He was good over so many disciplines. Extraordinary. But, you know, when you, you know, you say in Bolt, you see him, much more engaging lovable bloke, had him on whiteboard sports, he played up and was fun and enjoyed himself. So I have a real affinity with him uh, and, and dealing with him. But Carl Lewis at the time, you know, there was billboards all over the United States with Carl Lewis pasted on the side of huge buildings in preparation for what they thought would be a gold medal haul for him, which it was. So he had a lot of pressure on him. And he was the king of athletics for years and years. Absolutely. Uh, and, and he was a spokesman for athletics. He was certainly always denied and said that drugs should not be available in sport and there should be no tolerance level. Uh, ben Johnson, he had no... Uh, well, the he, 88 final. Yeah, yeah well, you know, he, once again, Raylene Boyle suffered the same fate, beaten by somebody who was later on tested positive to drugs. I mean, that would shatter me mm. to think that that was a gold medal for you and you can never, ever get it. And uh, I, th I think at the time... Carl Lewis had every right to believe uh, there's something going on here. I'm, I may be not as good as I used to be, but I'm not as bad neither as that made me look. And Ben Johnson was just a poor, inarticulate who, uh, sprinter who had no real magical personalities. He was just a bull on the run. And, uh, you know, he, he, he along with, uh, what's his name, uh, in cycling. Um, oh, Lance Armstrong. Yeah, Lance Armstrong. Uh, Lance Armstrong, that is the greatest One of the saddest upset. things in sport, isn't Just it? Just about the saddest thing I've ever seen in sport. How you can make absolutely millions of fans feel as if they've been absolutely cheated and let down. And even his greatest fans, when all the suspicion was right, ah, you fellas are just too suspicious. You, you know, typical journalists, typical people that, you know, excel. And then, you know, I had a book released that I wrote my Wide World of Sports book in 2009 at the time. You know, he, he had his book and we were side by side, but I only had about one little column and he had the whole shop, you know, Lance Armstrong books. And I thought, how I'll never beat this guy. And wouldn't you know, two months after that, three months, whatever yeah. it was, fallen from grace, fallen from grace. So, yeah, that was sad. Very sad. Speaking of another polarising athlete, the US Masters is one mm. of my favourites as well. Yeah. What was it like seeing Tiger Woods win his first major in 97? That was, once again, that was a, a career highlight. Uh, he broke down so many barriers. Um, he was a fellow who obviously was gifted. He could talk the talk, walk the walk, all that sort of stuff. He had a, an intriguing family uh, who were behind him, his father. And to see that final round gallery following around what is the most picturesque golf course I've ever seen it's magical. It's like the green carpet ride. It's Disneyland for golfers. 
And that was my first one. And here I am to watch this kid, which he was, mm. just belt everybody and win it. And then you saw the faces in the crowd. And you knew that a lot of the faces in the crowd, many, many thousands, didn't know a thing about golf, had no idea what they were watching other than they were watching greatness. Tiger had drawn them in to his magical world. And you just looked at that and you said, this kid's going to be around for a long, long time. Once again, another fall from grace. Yeah. Very, very sad. But it was, um, I said to myself then, if I never go to another Masters, it doesn't matter. This is the one that I will always remember. And it is still, uh, it, it is. I went to, I think about eight or nine of them. But that one that stands out, the first, and Tiger Woods was off and running. What about, again, another Masters moment, but watching Adam Scott finally step out of Greg Norman's shadow, what was that like, a really great strange sporting moment? Great regret is I wasn't there to see it, but I'm a big fan of Adam Scott, the way he conducts himself, the way he walks around the course, what he does outside of uh, golf. Uh, he's, he's the complete package. And uh, I don't know whether he's a, a legend or a, gr a great player right now. I have no idea. Sometimes those things have run around very loosely. He probably should have won more. I, I think so. I think he should have won more before he won that Yes. Uh, well, I, the British thought, Open was a... Well, I thought he, when he first started to really shine, mm. I thought, this guy's good for three or four yeah. majors. And that, that, to me, makes him a great golfer. Three or four majors is a, is a great golfer. Well, Greg only won two. That's exactly right. And that's what I measure upon. You know, Greg was number one for zillions of years. 360 weeks, I think. You're, you're way in front there. And, uh, you know, we all thought, no, nah, nobody can do that. And yet for all that, he made you know, an absolute fortune in money and set up a great business. But the thing that eluded him, obviously, was another major. The and ones, the, yeah. the Masters, the funny thing about the Masters, and you see it on the faces of those who didn't quite make it, uh, Greg Norman, it was always a pity that he could not be there for the following year at the Masters as the reigning champion yes. hosting the traditional dinner in that beautiful old clubhouse where these great champions, if a lot of them have only won one major, yeah. but they're there at this dinner yeah, and Norman right. was missing. Mm. And you'd say if you, Norman would probably one-on-one -on -one beat him eight times out of ten. But that's how it works in sport. You know, it's, there's no such thing as justice. It's just whether you have that good day On or day. not. Yeah. Could you maintain some romanticism for sport or did you get too close to it because you're working at them all the time? I have, um, I once said to Mark Taylor, uh, I said, I do a lot of talks around schools and various places. And I said, I, I always use you as a role model. You weren't the greatest cricketer. You were an absolutely outstanding captain. Yeah. You had Shane Warne, Steen War, you had a Mark War, you had a a gun team and you shaped those fellows mm. and they were then inherited by Steve Waugh. He inherited a terrific team. He really did. But I said, here you are. I said, I remember, I think it was in Pakistan. I said, you looked as if you were going to get, you know, uh, the triple century, da-da-da-da, all that sort of thing. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Um, and But you did it with such grace. And I said to the kids at the time, you know, when I was talking to them, I said, that's, you take that into your usual workplace or take it in at your school. It's how you regroup after a major upset or, you know, a disappointment. And I said, you are what I call the spirit of sport. You, 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 you play it, you love it. You're not the greatest at it, but you're good. And there you were, you fail in front of millions. And 
you have your triumphs in front of millions. It's how you treat both. Mm. I think if you treat failures with dignity and class, to me, sometimes that measures a man more than anything else or a woman. And he's a great guy too, Toby, isn't he? Yep, you can't help. I mean, Shane Warne openly says, you know, he was the best captain yeah. I ever planned, and we all know he ne- didn't necessarily always get on with Steve Waugh. But, I, you know, I know Richie Benno thought the world of Mark Taylor, and so did Bill Laurie. Ian Chappell just liked the way he played the game. Yeah. In fact, when you think about test cricket right now, the way it is played, I mean, usually it's, it's you know, get to get too many five-day games, but Mark Taylor said... We're going to go out and we're not just going to stop the ball and stop the ball and plod and plod and plod and and drive people away from the game. We're going to play entertaining cricket. And that was a turning point, actually, in the way the world game of cricket was to be played. Go for runs. Go for the guys who have got a little bit of ticker, chance their hand. Uh, There's enough steady, steady influences in there. And that's why, you know, people like uh, Mark Waugh and and Shane Warne shone because Mm. Mark Taylor tapped into their magic. And um, you mentioned Wildwater Sports before and, you know, the great Maxie Walker. And I've actually got a photo with you and Max on the Wildwater Sports set from, I think, 1994 when I did work experience. And, you know, I just want to say I owe a debt of gratitude to you for that because it it changed the course of my life. And, you know, within four years, I was working at Channel 9. So um, That's nice. Yeah, well, I can pinpoint, you know, the time when I changed my life from when I was at school to finding something that I wanted to do yeah. and, you know, not getting anywhere near where you have in your career, but at least giving me a different path. And yeah. um, did you like taking on that type of mentoring role for whether it be work experience kids or young journalists when you are the sports editor at Nine? I love mentoring and um, I have had a, a lot of uh, pleasurable moments getting young people who've got a passion, got drive, knew how to work. Uh, I enjoy them and I enjoy their company. And somewhere along the line, you know that you've given them something that may carry them through a little bit further. I don't say that anyone's going to end up champions, but you try to tap into what is their potential and if they're prepared to listen. But the great thing about the job, and always will be about the job, is that I never felt old amongst the company I kept at Channel 9. Uh, I had people that I mixed with from... 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 60, whatever. But basically, they were a lot of young people. And, um, you know, the trouble with retirement that I'm finding now is that in retirement, you're almost... It's not a deliberate thing, but you are forced to mix with people your own age a lot more because there's not many people retired at 40 or 45 or 25. Mm. So indirectly, that's where you end up. So I find that you know, I'm getting used to that part of the business. But I still have a foot in the door at nine and I go down and see them every six weeks or whatever, just to have a chat, walk around, see the new faces. Um, you know, my, <laughs> my photo's on the wall in several places around nine. I thought they would have been ripped down by nine. It was a simple pleasure, actually, because I don't think I'm an egomaniac. I never have been. Um, uh, but it's a, it's a lovely thing that you walk back to a place that you worked for 37 and a half years and in the industry, as you said, for 50 years and you, you're not, you're, you're your, face, your face is still up there on the wall. It, it, there will come a time they'll take it down, but it's nice. And I, I must admit, I used to love walking around the halls and seeing the past people that were there. And I mean, I, I got a buzz out of seeing that stuff as well. But um, did you have any mentors along the way that really helped you in the way you've helped others? 
Well, I don't know that I had mentors, but what I had was absolutely superb people in their position, particular position, and I would listen. Listening is an art, I think. Yeah. Listening, mouthing off is easy. Listening is hard, particularly if it's not interesting. But the amazing thing is, in a half-hour interview, you're just plodding along and nothing's happening. All of a sudden, a little bit of magic drops on top of you and go, wow, here we go. We've got something to a driver hook into. But, you know, Mike Gibson was there. Mike had a unique way of uh, sports broadcasting, uh, a, a terrific writer. Uh, he was, for a period of time, uh, just what every kid wanted to be. I wasn't a kid. That was the, that what saved me when I walked into yeah. Sydney. I was uh, 30, 32 years of age. So I wasn't a young fellow as such, and I, I knew the pitfalls uh, were pretty much the same as what you'd have in the bush, but yep. only of a, probably a bigger magnitude. But, you know, I, and I listened to Richie Benno and, and, and Brian Henderson and Ian Ross and, uh, you know, the great Ken Sparks, one of the greatest voices ever known, just a voiceover yep. diamond who was so big in the late 60s and 70s in radio and was for, at Channel 9, the voice of Channel 9 promos for, gee, 20, 30 years. So I gleaned a little bit off everybody. I was actually going to mention Ken because he used to do lots of voiceovers for us and he was such an interesting character. He had his business card with the Ferrari on it and <laughs> we'd talk about all his ex-wives and how he has to keep working to keep them all. And you really do some, get some great characters, don't you, in the industry? You do, you do. And, and uh, I mean, I always loved having a chat with uh, Peter Harvey. I loved politics. If I hadn't done what I've done, I think I probably would have got into some form of politics, whether it's in the media side of it or, or whatever. But, you know, that wasn't the case. I had a first love and that was sport. Uh, but I love talking to Peter and I love talking to Laurie Oakes. They don't come in town and tell you what they know. You've got to ask them. And that, and I, I had a genuine interest. So I, their company I really, really did enjoy. You know, there's various sports people that you enjoy. You know, Mamet Yachi, you wouldn't even know him now. Mamet Yachi in 1998 won a gold medal at the Commonwealth Games in Kuala Lumpur. One of the greatest sporting moments I've ever had. I had a tear in my eye. Um, Mamet, very few people would know who he is. He was a lifter, can't tell you the division, but it was a lightweight division. And he had accidentally almost got on the, the Australian team because, by and large, they needed to fill a gap and they couldn't find anybody else. So they said, oh, we'll take this weightlifter, bring him into the team. He's been on the fringe for a couple of years now. He's a, a son of Turkish immigrants. You know, he's a battler from the streets of Marikville uh, and all that sort of stuff. Give him a crack. And he came on that tour or on that uh, Commonwealth Games. Johnny Newman, I think it was was the gold medal favourite, a good mate of his. They kicked soccer balls in the streets around Marrickville together. They were good mates. But Newham was regarded as a dead set certainty to win the gold medal. It was just a walk-up thing. And out he comes. He fails to lift the weight. And disappointment. Gee, you know, well, what's going to happen now? Out comes this Mamet Yachi. And it was a moment in time that some sportsmen get to experience. He lifted an extraordinary weight. And nothing illicit about it. It was legal. And I saw him when he dropped the weight and he flew in the air. He seemed to fly. I got slow motions going through my, my mind now. This little fellow just punching the air and such joy. But you know what? Within about two, within a couple of minutes, Johnny Newman was sitting on the sidelines. I think he ended up with the bronze. 
And Mehmet went straight over and consoled his mate. And it was in the dressing room. And to me, I thought, that is the purity of sport. That's what sport's all that, about. That yeah. is the purity of sport. I've seen Mamet once or twice before, uh, since, but he's not a household name. But for me, that was a great sporting moment. And the other thing that struck me, Mamet came to the studio that night, and I was hosting that part of the day, and he stood in the corner waiting to come onto the set. And finally, he comes onto the set, and he puts his hand out, and he shakes hand. He says, oh, Mr. Sutcliffe, I'm a huge fan of yours. I said, don't worry about me. You've won a gold medal. You were doing something that I could never, ever be able to do. So I said, let's throw that away. Let's talk about you. But so it was a lovely, lovely moment. And it was one of those moments in sport that, you know, there wasn't a lot of fanfare about it. To me, I just saw the purity of sport that day. And um, I guess going back to mentors, I mean, there were probably none bigger than Kerry Packer, an imposing man with an even bigger reputation in the TV industry. Mm. What was he like away from the spotlight? Uh, look, if I hadn't been doing a reasonable job, I know I wouldn't have. I enjoyed his patronage. I really did. Um, he would live sport 24 hours a day. He's an insomniac. He would wake up in the middle of the night to watch the Masters. Nothing got past him as far as sport was concerned. And he had an intimate knowledge, an intimate knowledge of sport, and he knew... Uh, what was good and what was bad and what the people wanted. He understood it. He didn't want absolute lily-white clean skins. He wanted characters. He wanted love. He wanted passion. He wanted guys who just get out there and all heart. He, he understood what television could do to sport. Um, a fearsome person. A fearsome person. Uh, I remember one time his secretary asked me to, or told me to come to Park Street where Kerry Packer was, his office, and Mr. Packer wants to have a chat with you. And I said to Sam Chisholm, the then boss of Channel 9, the actual CEO, he said, he's, he's, he's on to you, isn't he? I said, what do you mean? He's going to take you in there and give you a bawling out of something, and I think I know what it is. You've interviewed a person today that he really doesn't like, and he wondered why you went to Canberra in the first place, because Canberra, is, he couldn't give a fig about Canberra, and why you went down there, and da-da-da-da. He said, but, Sam said, but you go to him, and you stand up for yourself, because that was a bloody good story, and you just stand. And I'm thinking, well, I've got a wife, and <laughs> three kids, and a mortgage. I said, yeah, sure, well, but what I did, I made up my mind as I was driving in there that I would stand my ground until you felt as if you'd done enough yep. and then just back off. I walked into his office and it was, his office seemed to be like a cavernous hall and there was shots of photograph and heads of various things he'd shot in South Africa and that's intimidating because he loved that sort of thing. And he uh, asked me in, and a very low voice, sit down, Sutcliffe, sit down, we'll have a chat. And I'm dreaming, he's got his feet up on the table, and he's, and he's got a sock on, a sock with a hole in the middle of it. And I think, he's the richest man I've ever met, and he's got a hole in his sock. That was what took my, the sock had got me, you know. <laughs> anyway, he asked me to explain myself about this particular story. And I argued backwards and forth, not argued, but just put my point of view. Then it, strategically, I said, look, to myself, you don't go any further, you've made your point. Kerry then said, well, what do you think, Sutcliffe? And I said, well, Mr. Packer, your television station, your rules. Good, we understand one another. And I was, I was sort of proud of myself that I'd 
I stood up for myself. He would respect that too, I think. I, I think he did. I think he did. Anyway. It's quite an uncanny impression too then, yeah, right? Yeah, well, it did. A lasting impression. And he got up to show me out the door. He opened the door and he put out his hand, which seemed to be 10 sizes bigger than anybody else's hand. And he said, well, Sutcliffe, what do you think? I said, well, I could call him Kerry then by the time we got to that door. I said, well, Kerry, I'd been to a funeral earlier in the day and I thought I was going to another one. And he looked at me and he said, well, you did better than the first bloke, didn't you? <laughs> then realized that famous gun story, isn't <laughs> there, when he had the gun in the drawer? Uh, and he realised it might have been a bit insensitive. And he said, no one close, I'm hope. You know? <laughs> anyway, there are many, many stories about Kerry, his generosity, uh, which uh, a lot of it we'll never, ever know. And that's the way he wanted it. But, you know, he, he set the bar. He set the bar. He, he put the money in. He put the faith in. And he carried a lot of sport that cost a lot of money that didn't rate. But he felt as a total look, you had to have them. You had to. I mean, there's not a lot of money at 2 o'clock in the morning showing the Masters. Yeah. But it adds to the, the, the overall package. For the home of sport. Network. Yeah. And I want to touch a little bit on um, creativity. And look, you work with some fascinating and some of the most creative people um, that's ever graced our screens. But who made the biggest impact on you and what did you learn from them? I think, I think the greatest impact on me, when I was a boy, and I, I, I love Ken Rosewell, and he's a mate now, but I love Ken Rosewell, Lou heard that era. And I told Ken one time, I used to play tennis on the railway tennis court beside my mum and dad's humble house and my mate Barry Dawson would be up at one end of the court. He was blonde so he had to be Lou Hode and I was down the other end and I was Ken Rosewell. And we'd listen to the Davis Cup while we played in hot summer days and they burned an ambition in my being and I thought to myself one day, I, I don't think I can be like Ken Rosewell, but I wonder if I can get involved in sport somewhere along the line. Not giving great thought to it anyway. So that was a, that was in many ways, you go back the embryonic stage of uh, what I was going to embark on. But, but I really do think the greatest impact on my uh, career, and not think, I, I, I know the greatest impact has been my wife. And and as a country girl, uh, uh, mum and dad uh, on the land, uh, she went to Sydney, uh, private school education. She came back to Mudgee, and here I was, uh, lucky to know how to hold a fork correctly. And uh, you know, I saw this beautiful girl and thought, gee, you know, maybe I'm a bit like Warney, batting way above my, <laughs> batting way above my average or ability. Uh, but I pursued and I pursued. But Anne was content to let me run my race and encourage me, even though there were awkward hours over the weekends. I worked every weekend of my life in 50 years of broadcasting. So, you know, there's a lot of things that she had to take on board. And it, without her saying, if, she, if I'd have walked out that door every day to go to work and she said, this is a terrible job, you're never here, you're never at home, all that sort of stuff, that would have had a tremendous impact on whatever I was about to achieve. Well, let's, I want to actually talk a little bit about happiness because I think happiness is a big one in not just today's society, but how did you balance that work-life so you could maintain happiness 
for your career as well as with your family? I, I don't know. As, once again, I came back to a woman who was prepared to meet the balance, probably in my, in my favour. I, I just knew that if you want to be in sport, you've got to work weekends, end game. I mean, that's just a fait accompli. And I've met many guys, oh, I don't want to, I'd love to be in sport. And I said, yeah, what hours do I have to work? Oh, well, you know, five-day weeks, but, uh, you know, you'll have to work weekends. Oh, I don't want to work weekends. We said, well, you want to work in sport, you better change your attitude. Yeah. So that was a pretty simple thing to come to terms with. It's when you're raising children. I was taking my children on a Saturday morning to various sports, but I was never there to bring them home. Never there to bring them home. Not once did I watch any of my children complete a full day sport, not once. Now that's a great regret, but the kids have grown up into really good human beings and they were always good kids. We all still love one another passionately and they're proud of me and I'm proud of them. Well, I guess you made up for it at other times though. I did, and I gave, and, and, and I, I said, look, you live in a nice house, we have lovely trips overseas, you've got a good education, uh, you, you know, you're off and running, and, uh, you know, that's what, that was my gift. Your mother brought the most important thing to light is that the family home is sacrosanct. So... When you're yeah. home, you're present, you're not yeah, just there. Yeah, exactly. And Anne being such a capable woman and a warm woman of the land... There was nothing she could do. She would drive from Sydney to Brisbane by herself if she had to. She could change a tyre. She was just one of those women who could do anything. And, and she did most things that a lot of women just will not do uh, and still does, you know. So, yeah, there, there's been sports people that I've admired. But, you know, the person that really nutted it out for me and uh, been married, you know, for 48 and 49 years is my wife, and that's uh, still the case. The thing I want to talk about is facing a challenge or fear seems to hold a lot of people back. How important do you think it is to overcome those fears for people to achieve happiness? Well, I think one of the things you've got to be brutally honest about, you've got to say to yourself, somewhere along in your career, as you've got it off and running, but you haven't got into second year yet, is... Ambition beyond ability is almost as dangerous as having no ambition whatsoever because when you have ambition beyond ability, any failures you, that you might have, they are compounded. And you think to myself, I'm a loser. I think I was always, and I know I was, I was always one of those guys, I had a fair idea what my limits were. But within those limits, I absolutely exploited it. Yeah. I ripped every scintilla of talent out of my limited ability to make it a possibility. And I've seen so many fall from grace because they thought, you know, I, had, I, I feel sorry for them. It's not, not always intentional, but they thought they were something that they could never be. And uh, I was fortunate enough to sort of, you know. Is, uh, that, is that talent or work ethic, though? It's both. Talent and work ethic go hand in hand. You know, those who have unbelievable talent and an unbelievable workability, well, working ability, you know are going to get there. I mean, it's like watching Tiger Woods. The hours he spent on the practice round, practiced and practiced and repetitive, repetitive. A lot of them do the same thing over and over again, swimming, the black line, all that sort of thing. Uh, they just exploit, the great ones exploit their ability and know what's beyond their ability. Do you, do you feel a sense of gratitude when you look back on your career now? 
I'm, uh, I'm grateful. I've never been unemployed. Never, ever been unemployed. And sometimes what can be a volatile industry. But you know what I keep on saying to people? My, my job is the same as anybody else's in many ways. You go to work, you do the best you possibly can, and if it's not good enough, will you get found out? And that's the same in a typing pool at the local uh, uh, council office. It's the same at the local bank or whatever, except in my business, it's public business. Yeah. So you've got a little bit extra pressure. Because, but, you know, I say to a lot of people, the jealousies and the, the pitfalls in my uh, chosen field is no different to a professional trying to be a good solicitor or trying to be the best uh, fruit and veggie man or, or being whatever, the best of whatever, no different, you know, no different. But it's just that we, in the media, you know, we, we're in the public eye. Speaking of which, um, Billy Birmingham, you know, made a career out of taking off a lot of people, but, um, you know, obviously the 12th Man series, but the only voice he didn't do on the Wild World Sports album was yours. Mm-hmm. Why was that? He couldn't get it. He just couldn't nail my voice. And I don't blame him for that because I always thought my voice was just, it was okay, but it, was, it wasn't, g'day, how you going or anything like that. It was, a, it was there, but it wasn't belting you in the face. So did he ask you to do it? Yes, he did. He rang up and said, look, I, I can't get you. Would you mind being on the 12th Man album? I said, sure. What, what do you want me to do? He said, I will meet me in the hotel, Regent Hotel in Sydney. He said, I've got a tape recorder. And I will do a sentence and you repeat it. And this is the script he would give me for The Twelfth Man. And that took about <coughs> sorry, about half an hour to do. The skits, the scenes and all that sort of thing. Just one line he'd repeat it, I repeat it. And then, then he went down to his um, studio in the Southern Highlands. And a very clever man that he is. He pieced it all together. And I don't know how many people over the years have come up to me and said, Wow. Billy Birmingham really <laughs> nailed you, didn't he? I said, oh, no, I'd go along with it. I said, yeah, I never, I never thought I would sound like Billy Birmingham. And, and, uh, and is that where the male model from Mudgee originated? He, he gave that literation, uh, the male model from Mudgee. Graham Kennedy gave me uh, uh, blue eyes and two dogs after the two dogs joke, which I'm not going to explain now, but fairly ribald joke, which he was the only one game enough to do it on air and get away with it. And I, at the time, was on set, laid on the uh, desk in fits of laughter and tears streaming by my face, being called Two Dogs. That wasn't when the dog was on the table, was it? Uh, the dog, that was my dog, and uh, Sam, his name was. And Sam jumped up on the table one day, and he had his backside pointing to the camera, which was not rehearsed, and all you could see were the crown jewels hanging down. <laughs> and Graham put his head to one side of the dog and said... Guess which one's Graham Kennedy? <laughs> so they, yeah, they were magical yeah. moments. But getting back to uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the things that make it tick and the twelfth man. Uh, once again, I didn't think too much about it. Even this year, I think it's fifteen, almost maybe twenty years since I did that. People talk about it like it was yesterday, and I only listened to the actual CD of it about five years ago. Really? Yep. The only time I listened to the whole CD, the kids. Thought it was hilarious. Maxie, because the piss was taken out of him a bit, that I was taking his job on and Richie wanted me to be on the, in the commentary team and all that sort of thing and then dropped a few F-bombs here and there. And, you know, if you see Richie, if you see Maxie uh, Walker, knock him over, I don't want to see him, all this sort of stuff. Yeah. I love Max. Love Maxie. Great man. Lovely fellow. And we miss him deeply. But, you know, um, uh, yeah, you know, it, it is what it is and it's part of the, the things that I did. 
And you know what was good about it? I, I also did Roy and HG where I mimed a song, uh, you know, a, a Frank Sinatra song, and they had me pulling levers in a railway station and folks flying arrows and killing people. And, you know, and you know, they, they see a different side of you in those sorts of things, not just the person sitting there being terribly, terribly responsible doing sport. Uh, I'm a, I got a twinkle in my eye and I've got enough larrikin in, in, in me to make it work. Yeah. In your retirement announcement, you mentioned travelling and playing sport instead of watching it. Have you been able to achieve that? Uh, I've travelled a bit. Uh, I don't want to live out of a suitcase. I mean, I did that for you know, long, many, many years. There's no, there's no glamour in being at airports after a while. Uh, but I, I realised I was very fortunate and so I'll never whinge about it. But uh, when I take holidays these days, I like to just go there and stay in one one or two places and just not move around and that to me is a good holiday as far as sport is concerned I wanted to play a lot more golf but because I've got had uh, two hip replacements I, I can't play the way I'd like to play so that's been restricted so you know I watch a bit on TV I walk every day religiously I do about 11 k's a day uh, I do um, a walk in the morning into the into town on the outskirts of Mudgee I still have a home in Sydney so we split our time there, but I'd walk into uh, the town in Mudgee, have a cup of coffee, read the paper and walk back home, which is 5Ks up. And then in the afternoon, I go in and do another six at a gym, which I've never been a member of a gym in my entire life. But I go in there and I do, uh, I do about 6Ks in about 45 minutes. And that's a brisk walk. And I go home and that's, my, that's a religion for me. I do that every day. You've mentioned Mudgee again, and obviously this is where you grew up. Were you always going to retire back in Mudgee and I guess following on from that I mean you even you went to school with my mum but um, what do you love most about the town? Well it's a better town than when I was a young boy you know great coffee shops superb coffee shops for a country town many of them terrific hotels great accommodation you know a couple of one hat restaurants and a lot of other very good ones and the winery the wines have been there for a long long time um, it's just a bit of everything. When I was a boy here, there was only one vineyard operating and it was doing just one batch of type of wines, fortified wines, that sort of thing. I come back years later and there's 30, 35, you know, cellar doors uh, and it's uh, right next door to the hunter and it's got a, it's got a nice way about it. It's, mm. it's, not trying to be, it's not beyond what it is. It, it just, it, once again, it exploits what it's good at yep. and the town is very, very open. It's on the tourist map. It's got a great profile. And I just enjoy it. And, you know, I, I walk around very freely and people, I, I'm just one of the, part of the furniture. And that's the way I like it to be. I, you know, every now and again, someone will come up with your mind having an autograph or something like that. I've got no problems with that. But here in this town, you, you just can suck if you did a good job. You make Mudgee feel good about itself. But uh, don't get in love with yourself because we'll <laughs> yeah. bring you down pretty quickly, son. And I was never any danger of that. I knew exactly how to treat that sort of uh, life. And, uh, you know, I've seen too many others. Uh, and country upbringing was yeah. integral in me knowing what was important and what wasn't. Yeah. And just a quick fire questions to finish up with. If you could only go back to watch one sport as a fan, what would it be? Wimbledon. Uh, the best sports person you ever saw? Uh, well, um, Covering, I guess. Yeah, in, covering. In, yeah. um, well, the, the bravest, Mick Doohan and Wayne Gardner. Travelling on missiles, that's brave. Uh, but as far as the, the greatest sportsman, I think for me, when I first met Ken Rosewell, yep. my boy, and I was well into my mid-30s, and I was, the first time I can honestly say I was in awe. And the other thing, 
Jackie Stewart, the great caller. Yep. We did so many uh, Grand Prix together, Melbourne Grand Prix and Adelaide Grand Prix. But one day, while Adela- while he we were in the studio, I saw somebody sitting in the corner, and I'm here. I'm sitting beside the great Jackie Stewart. I'm really enjoying everything that I'm doing. And during the commercial bloke, this guy walks out. He's obviously a friend of uh, Jackie's. He's come in to see us work. And he comes into the lights. We're in a commercial break. And it's George Harrison from the Beatles. Wow. And I went, whoa. And he was always my favourite Beatle. I just loved the way he played and uh, his songs and so forth. We never talked about that. We just talked about car racing. And I never went near the Beatles. Just George and I and Jackie. And that, that was a... Pretty, I was almost, I was a fan again. I was, was going to say, a pinch me. I mean, took you back to your childhood there. Yeah, back to the, you know, when I first started in radio, the Beatles from Rolling Stones, as I said. So here he was, the Beatle. He, he was a mad fan of F1, yeah. And um, best advice you were ever given? Uh, be true to yourself. It's a cliche, but be true to yourself and uh, don't get beyond what you are. And one piece of advice for someone looking to follow in your footsteps? Work hard. And it's not a five-day-a-week job in the media. Get prepared to um, donate a lot of your time to the various 24 hours in a day. Uh, but you can. You can be very happy and you can have a good life and you can have a good family. You just know how to pull the strings. And lastly, with all of you know, this taken into account, what do you feel is the real key to living a life on your own terms and not governed by someone else? Well, one, you've got to have good health. In touch wood, to this point, I've had good health. Um, I've made very sound decisions. I'm not a gambler. I've only taken a couple of gambles. One was doing Graham Kennedy. That, the, the boss of Wide World at Sports at the time, Graham, uh, uh, David Hill, said to me when I started doing this, he, with no uncertain terms, he saw the first couple of episodes and we were abysmal. He said, your career is absolutely stuffed and used a couple of other F-bombs. And I thought, wow, this is great. I've stuffed up my career by making a wrong career decision. But it turned out to be a brilliant career decision. And David was big enough to sort of say I was wrong many months later. So Taking that risk? You got, every now and again, you just got to step out of your comfort zone, yeah. Ken, to steal one of your lines, mate. Done and dusted. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dean. Lovely to talk to a boy from Mudgee who's done good. <laughs> Thank you, mate. Thanks for listening. Tune in to Lifting the Lid next time when we talk to someone else.